as a way of beginning this afternoon, I, I want to give you an invitation just to step back from what we're doing here together and maybe to reflect on uh, what, a, what a beautiful thing we're giving to the world. At least that's what comes to me when I reflect on what we're doing here together on this retreat is, is what a beautiful thing that we're giving to the world. To step out of these ordinary, often unskillful, habitual ways of seeing and into a kind of seeing or perceiving that really frees the heart and mind. And when I reflect on this beautiful world, yet troubled world that I live in, so much of that trouble hinges upon ways of seeing and perceiving uh, that can cause so much harm, whether it be individually or collectively. So it's a very long-winded way of saying thank you for your practice. I, I think it, it makes an impact. And uh, there's another reason I want to share this is as I do think it's important to cultivate this ability to appreciate, to open our hearts to our lives and what we're doing here. It really threads back to some of the pieces uh, that we began with, the appreciating ones, for example, ethical integrity that, that Gil spoke about. The ability for you to appreciate yourself, to actually let yourself love yourself on some kind of level. It's this uh, leading with the heart that I come back to again and again that I think is so essential. Because it was the, the piece that was missing for me for such a long time. I feel like I was very ardent and passionate about this practice, but not having the softness of the heart and the, and the openness of the heart and that gentleness really uh, brought so much dukkha for me around this practice. So I, I offer that as a reminder, especially when I share these things. I, I, I mean the reflections that I share with you this afternoon to be held within that gentleness of heart. Yesterday afternoon, Gil shared with us these reflections on this chariot, the purification of view. <clears throat> this, uh, this practice of shedding those different views, our different views, our different stories, our ordinary concepts about the world. And this afternoon, I'm going to be sharing with you taking the next step, really hopping on the next chariot which is this purification by overcoming doubt. And for me, I think one way that this fits is, is it's such an important chariot because doubts can start to arise when I begin to let go of my ordinary ways of seeing the world. When there is the shedding of those stories and those concepts, there can be a kind of uneasiness around that. And I feel that this chariot really continues this process of shedding of shedding these views and stories 
done in a particular way by uh, by getting a, a different feeling sense of the structure of experience. And this is what I want to share with you today: is getting a different feeling sense of the the structure of momentary experience. What do I mean by that? What does Brian mean by that? Getting a different feeling sense of the structure of momentary experience. And it's kind of a confusing sentence when I reflect on it right now. So I, I'd like to uh, begin with an analogy. <coughs> you could say in a past life of mine, I, um, I briefly played clarinet in a jazz band and it was a blast. <laughs> and I remember one of the foundational things that I learned, and this is really key for, for playing jazz, was to start learning the structure of, of the tunes we were playing. And in particular, the, the, the structure I began with was to um, learn the structure of many blues and rock and roll songs, which is namely, and many of you know this, the 12-bar blues, which is a, it's a particular uh, chord progression. It's a standard prog chord progression usually um, consisting of uh, the one chord and four chord and five chord of any given key. And once I could hear that, when I, once I could start to listen to a sound and start to hear that chord progression and then start to hear these other chord progressions that were used in jazz, it was so much easier for me to, to learn the songs we were playing and also to improvise because that's what I needed to be listening to and to really have a feeling sense for to improvise was to, to be in tune with that, that underlying structure of whatever song we were, we were um, playing, really the chord progression. And it is, it's the, it's, it's the foundational piece for, for jazz. And this afternoon I, I wanna share with you in a similar way, we're here to start to hear to listen for this underlying structure that's in experience and to come back to this, to, to develop that, that feeling sense for it. And it's the, it's the structure of dependent origination. Right? And I know most of you, when you think of dependent origination, you think, yeah, jazz chord progressions. <laughs> yes, I'm glad he mentioned this. This is the thing that always comes to my mind. That's what I thought. And I want to share with you a, a simple um, definition of dependent origination. And I'm going to be keeping it uh, simple, to, to hopefully simple, to, to make sure that we can get a feeling sense for this. And it can be boiled down to these four simple sentences uh, that we find in the, in the early discourses. First sentence, when this is, that is. From the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this isn't, that isn't. From the cessation of this comes the cessation of that. What is, he, what is the Buddha mentioning here? It's this basic principle of conditionality. If we come back to this image of a garden, we have a seed and that particular condition, when it combines, when there's the, the arising of that seed and soil and a certain amount of moisture and warmth, when all those things arise, then what arises? A flower. When those conditions are there, this arises. 
when some of those conditions cease, when there's no longer any water, that flower will cease. This is, this is this, these basic principles of conditionality. And it's found throughout the teachings, you know, just in terms of dependent origination, seeing that the Four Noble Truths really are a form of, of understanding conditionality. Oh, when there's tanha, when there's tanha here, when that's a condition in the soil, what arises from that? Oh, interesting, suffering arises from that. That condition is, is taken out of the equation. It's no longer there. Oh, there's a ceasing of suffering. Oh, and there's a path with all these different kind of elements to it, these conditions. And when we, when we uh, bring about those path factors, then what arises is this, this gateway that opens to freedom. And of course, there's many versions of uh, dependent origination, some with 12 links, 10 links, 9 links, 11 links, 6 links. And of course, you know, the 12 links is the one that always gets the, the biggest press. But it, it, it's this underlying understanding of conditionality. And so essential, as Sariputta reminds us, one who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma, and one who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination. I think another word that fits for this is this quality of interdependence, that things are interwoven together. I think Joe Muir put it well in his, oh, his diary from 1911. He had hiked up to uh, a lake, Lake uh, Tanaya, and it was uh, this view of these um, beautiful majestic peaks of Mount Hoffman. It was close by in Cathedral Peak. And when he looked out upon that, he, he had this reflection that when we try to pick up anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. This is a quality of dependent originations. Things dependently arise and cease. And yet on here on retreat, we're curious about this dynamic, this foundation to get a feeling sense of this, to hear this in our momentary experience around this realm of what's going on moment after moment within your own experience. And I'm sure you've already noticed this, right? You have some groovy, pleasant experience in your sitting meditation, right? That, that incredibly pleasant, concentrated sit. There it is, that in the pleasant sensations, it fills in the body. And then from there, right, there's a little bit of, ooh, yeah, I'd like some more of that. <laughs> and then the thoughts start to cascade from that wanting more. These stories of wanting to be on retreat for just a little bit longer, two weeks, about a month, wouldn't that be great? Visions of getting ordained, <laughs> being on retreat for the rest of your life, becoming a Dharma teacher. It's amazing the stories that come when it feels so good. But have you noticed what happens when there's an unpleasant sitting meditation? <laughs> the body feels cramped and painful and there your mind is making plans to leave, plans for that new relationship or the new job, 
the new vacation, at least a chocolate bar or a six pack, <laughs> something better than boring meditation. What is that? That's just, that's just conditions unfolding. Certain conditions arise, pleasant conditions, and then other conditions arise of thinking and grasping. Unpleasant conditions arise, and then, then the aversion and the other stories arise. It's just arising and passing. When this arises, that arises. From the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this ceases, that ceases. From the ceasing of this comes the ceasing of that. And it's just to notice that notice how things are intertwined in this way. And in particular, especially around suffering and the end of suffering, seeing some of these elements, some of the, some of the conditions that are in the soil that really give rise to some of these weeds of suffering and the conditions that are not there that allow those, those weeds to fall away. And so I want to give an example of this, how this is a different way of seeing, not our ordinary way of seeing. Because what, what I've noticed is that so often in my life, maybe because my life has been psychologized, which isn't a bad thing. I'm, I'm very grateful for the psychological perspective. But sometimes practice can be this place where um, I want to work on my issues and problems. And then if I practice hard enough, then I'll start to solve my issues and problems. And I'm not saying that's a bad perspective. I find that that can be a really helpful perspective. But this is an invitation to penetrate origination for a different perspective on, on it. And it's just one way. Many ways can be, many ways of seeing our experience can be very helpful for this path of healing and awakening. But I want to share an example of this, uh, how there's a little bit of a, a turn around this. And I remember this happened to me on a long retreat. I was at the forest refuge and I had, um, I had brought somebody that I didn't want to bring on retreat. I don't know if you've ever done that. There you are on retreat and that same person or that same situation keeps up popping in your head. And there they were in my head. It was a certain situation that had happened a few weeks before the retreat and I was looking forward to going on retreat because that person wasn't going to be on retreat. But there they were. <laughs> it was such a drag. And my mind was totally obsessing about it. Right? There was that bad interaction that happened. And, um, and there's all kinds of thoughts and feelings coming up around it. You know, the, the, the anger, the sadness, and it just was so, felt so pervasive. And then it would tumble into really some, some difficult mind states like, wow, something's wrong with me. You know, this is really like digging into some deep childhood issues of mine. And again, that's a valid perspective to have, that kind of frame. So I'm not trying to diminish that, but there is an important turn here. There is something, again, that feeling that there's something wrong with me, that this was coming up so much. I was wishing that the interaction would have been different, wanting that person to have been different, wanting that person to have heard me and seen me in a different way. That was the real kicker around it. And then a lot of it on retreat was like, what am I doing wrong? 
that's making me suffer. So here I was, I had, I had a serious issue, I had a serious problem here. And the stepping into the practice for me is I didn't need to figure out why this was happening. I needed to simply see what was happening. Because the tricky thing was is that I thought I knew what was happening. That I brought somebody on retreat that I didn't want to bring on retreat. But actually what was happening was, was not so much that. It was that there was an, a particular arising or particular flavors of arising that were happening. Sometimes it would just be an image, right? The image of the person was there. Or there would be a sentence or a couple sentences that then would cascade into certain kinds of more images and memories around some interactions. Or sometimes it would feel like that an unpleasant sensation in the body was the thing that, that was primary. And then it would like flower out of that. Or a primary emotion like anger or sadness or hurt or loneliness. That's what the, the experience was. It was these, these arisings of images, of words, of emotions, of sensations. And then what was happening with these cascading kinds of experiences of these, these are the pixels that were making up the experience. That there was the, I don't want this to be happening. There was the clenching, the pushing it away that was there. That's all that was there moment after moment that was coming and going. And then when I started to see that, then I could started to start to see the dukkha. Where was the dukkha? The dukkha was, I don't want this to be happening. That's where the big conflict was. Because right? there was a thought. It had an unpleasant feeling tone which also had unpleasant sensations to it. And then the kicker though was, I didn't want any of it. And that's where the big turn was. It didn't mean that all of that went away, but what started to open up was a different way of relating to it. It was just experience arising and passing away. It was just phenomena rolling on. That's all. And once the mind started to see that, it started to loosen its grip to see it really for what it was because I started to see conditionality. Phenomena rising and passing away. And when this arises in particular, aversion, that arises, suffering. And once that starts to release, oh, suffering begins to release. Just as a side note, I want to point out that I wasn't trying to get rid of the aversion. I was just needing to see it. My job is to see experience and then wisdom will do the letting go. I don't need to do the letting go. When I try to do the letting go, it's a bad scene. (laughs) It just means that I want something different. (laughs) So to leaving that to wisdom. And it can be difficult because I always want wisdom to do its job more quickly than it does. <laughs> For some reason, wisdom hasn't cut on to the capitalist system of being proficient. <laughs> but it's just my conditioning. 
So this is this is a very different perspective than even having issues or having problems. Because because really I'm living in a world of just phenomena arising and passing away. And yeah, that can be great to have that ordinary concept of that I have this issue. But what an issue is is just an arising and passing away. So I think that's one place where there can be this freedom that comes from seeing in a different way. And it can even be simpler in terms of starting to see these these conditions and these dynamics. For example, I remember around physical pain, and, and maybe some of you have had this insight. The first time I remember, that, that first time I was sitting in meditation and had the experience of tasting physical pain with no aversion. And it was such an aha, this thing of like, wow, I can have a, it was just a few moments, a few moments of feeling something that's unpleasant and not suffering from it. It was a big breakthrough because what I realized is that never before in my life before that time had I had the experience of physical pain without aversion. Always it had been that way. That pain was always accompanied with that. That was that was a, a, an interesting thing to see. That that when that condition wasn't there, the experience of pain was so radically different. Just as unpleasant, but that was a gateway to freedom. This is all within this this world of conditionality of dependent origination. So what's the opposite of dependent origination or inter interdependence? Because I think this will clarify it. That would be independence. And so I want to explain this because in, in to show how this is such an ordinary way of seeing the world. So I want to give a, an example of independence and how it's a, a common way of seeing, a common perception. So for example, You came here from San Jose or Santa Cruz or Palo Alto or all the way from England. You came from there and then you find yourself here at IRC. And sometimes you find yourself in the meditation hall or sometimes you find yourself in the dining room or sometimes you find yourself walking back to your room or going outside. And Yesterday, that same person might have had a good day, and today, that same person might have had a bad day. And what's behind that kind of narrative is that I'm this independent being that moves about in this world. I find myself affected by the world, and, but here I am, and I have this relationship with others in the world, yet I'm the same person that's going about in the world. I'm an independent person, I'm an independent being. That's not dependent origination. That's, that's, that's this sense of independence. You ever have thoughts like that? <laughs> <laughs> this is how our minds work. This is how we've been conditioned.
And please, I, I want to point out this framework of independence that I'm a, I'm a person that comes from one place to the other and I'm the same person is a really helpful construction. It's a really helpful conceptual construction. It's great for being able to communicate to one another and navigating this relative world. But one of the things that, that you can do here on this, this retreat is start to have um, having something other than having this as the basis of this basis of independence, of the sense that it's me moving around in the world and having relationships with other things. And instead turning around where the foundation, the first thing is relationships and processes. And out of those, I arise. The sense of me arises out of interaction. You know, Eugene Genlin, uh, who was a philosopher, but also um, wrote a lot on psychology, had this phrase, interactions first that all living things are interactions first. And then a sense of beingness, a sense of self arises out of those conditions. And this is the wonderful thing about what we're doing here with the noting of what's going on moment after moment. It's just seeing, seeing the arising and passing away of a phenomena to start to break up these notions of independence. So how to do this, a little bit more, some examples of this. And I want to go back to what Gil was pointing out at the, towards the end of his talk yesterday. That one way of seeing a moment of experience is that it's, a, it's this, the arising of these two aspects of experience. The knowing and then the object of that knowing. Right, so if we, again, if I ring the bell. Within the hearing of that, there's the sound and then there's the knowing of that sound. Right there in that experience right now around the sound of my voice. And it's, I'm not asking you to see if you can divide them up, but just to see what's in the, in the soup right there. There's a quality of knowing. That's how... You can hear that. There has to be consciousness. It's right there. And there's the sound. And they, they arise together. And then from that, there can be the notion, oh, I'm hearing the, the, the sound of the bell. But that's the, the construct that gets laid on this, the, these pixels of knowing and sound. And sometimes you can get a, a feeling of that. That experience is so radically different than the sentence, I'm hearing a sound. It's more simple and direct. You don't have to think about it, it's right there. Right? The feeling into that, very simple. Oh, knowing and a sound. Around all kinds of things, feeling the body sitting. Oh, sensations, and there's the knowing of sensations. 
starting to really have this sensitivity to these, sometimes what's called this, this pairwise fashion of arising and passing away. It's kind of oversimplifying it, but just knowing and something being known. And when we examine it from a, really more from this subjective point of view, it really does get a, give a different sense of, of experience. So for example, you're sitting here, and I invite you just to, to notice if you can just bring the attention to one of your big toes. So you can feel one of your big toes, hopefully. If not one of your big toes, then maybe the bottom of your foot. And there it is, there's an arising. There, the big toe just appeared. <laughs> And then you can bring the attention to the feeling of your hands. The appearance of the hands just happened. There's an arising. Bringing attention to the sound of my voice coming and going. Oh, there's the, there's the arising of, of sound. Here are these arisings in experience. That's all it is. This is what's going on, moment after moment after moment. And by now, maybe, maybe not for all of you, maybe the big toe disappeared. Right? That world of big toeness arose and passed, passed away. And this is what happens as I look over here and there's the, there's the emergence of a certain world over to my left, left and I turn right and there's the emergence of a different world to the other side of, of my body. Of course, I'm, I'm being poetic about this. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to get philosophical about you know, how much does the outside world exist or not. It's, it's not so much that, but to see that experience is dependent upon the arising of consciousness of knowing and particular input with that consciousness. That's what creates this world moment after moment. And you could say what's happening is there's thousands of worlds that are arising and passing away moment after moment after moment. And that's what I want to taste and touch and get a feeling sense for. Because really what I live in is that there's just a world out there that is static. And I walk through it. This is radically different. It's arising and passing away. All of it is. That's how consciousness works in some kind of manner. Seeing how radically different this is and hopefully disruptive it is. And one of the things that gets pulled out of experience when I start to see that interactions are first, what gets pulled out of it? Me. Because <laughs> that's where a lot of the sense of independence starts to get situated around. Like the knowing... And the sound, so often what happens is there's an identification around knowing. Because often what we, we ask the question, well, who's knowing? Well, I am. But that's a, that's a construction. And it can be tricky because that's the construction of our language, is that, is that so often, you know, there is a subject to a verb. And since there's a subject to a verb, and if, if, English, if the English language is a especially if the English language is the language you, you grew up with, 
there can be a, an assumption that, that that construction of language is reflecting how the nature of our experience. It's not reflecting the nature of our experience, it's just reflecting a language that's now shaped how we see experience. So yes, th this can be tricky. Why is it so important to, to see this, especially to take the self out of the picture, to see how the self comes after, it comes out of these arisings, out of these interactions? And it's because that um, it's so intertwined with suffering. Sometimes when the Buddha talks about the sense of self, he, he likens it to, he's using the word in a particular way that, that a lot of times when I create a sense of ownership or self around a part of experience, uh, there can be this belief that I have control over it. Like he's, he's having this conversation with this Brahmin, Agivisena, Satchika, the Niganta's son, and he's pointing out, how can you believe in a, in a self? You know, you're telling me you have control over your thoughts and emotions and body, but, but you don't. You don't have control over those things. You say they're yours, but, but please show me how you can control your thoughts and your emotions. Can you do that? Can you control your thoughts and emotions? I mean, if you could control your thoughts and emotions, why come on retreat? I mean, <laughs> there would be a dumb deal. <laughs> Wouldn't have any problems if I could just control all that stuff and the body. Boy. But hopefully by now you realize that <laughs> it doesn't work that way. And this comes back to the sense of, I can influence, there's the ability of, of the process of influencing, but not controlling. I want to give an example of this a little bit outside of what we usually claim as me or mine, just to, to get clear about how suffering gets intertwined and tangled with me, mine, this is myself. And why we want to undermine this by seeing dependent origination, how experience just arises and passes away. And the example is um, around the first car I got after, um, after leaving um, being a monk in the Zen tradition. So when I was a monk in the Zen tradition, it was not a financially lucrative endeavor. <laughs> so I didn't have a lot of money and I was living in southern New Mexico and um, I needed a car, and luckily, it was really, you know, this, when I reflect back on this, just what arises, I'm so grateful for friends and how they were really so, so supportive, and there was a, a woman part of the, kind of the town and the community I was a part of that um, sold me her Daihatsu car for $350, which I was really grateful for, and as I think it was like a three-cylinder car, and... Um, and it wasn't in the best of shape. I think she had actually made money off it. It had gotten hit so many times <laughs> that she was like collecting <laughs> insurance money in this really great way. So it wasn't like she was repairing it either. So you can imagine $350, the kind of car that this was, but it was, it ran and I was grateful. And uh, it was just funny, my, my mind's relationship to it because you know, there's all kinds of things that would fall apart on this, this car, like the, um, it had electric windows. And I remember the electric window on the passenger side broke down. And I remember how bummed I was, like, I can't believe the electric window broke down. And then the air conditioning, each time it felt like an assault. 
like, man, what's going on here? Like, this isn't supposed to be happening. And I was bummed out each time it broke down in some kind of manner. Why was I bummed out? Because it was my car. If it was your car, I would just give you a Dharma talk on impermanence and attachments. <laughs> and how you need to let go. Now you got some problems. But it wouldn't affect me as much. I'd, I'd feel for you. That's what it was, is there was a claiming of it. And there was a subtlety in the claiming is, is I wanted it to be the same. Or I wanted it to be a particular way. That's the process of selfing that happens. It's, it's this desire to fix some aspect of experience in some kind of way, either conceptually or something that we've tasted that we want it to stay the same and then it can form around these notions of self. Do, do you see how dependent origination starts to undermine that? Because I start to, to enter into the flowing nature of experience, how things are always arising and passing away, dependent upon these varying conditions. It's like entering more into the world of verbs rather than nouns, of processes rather than fixed things. And yes, there is a place for a sense of self. And we've already talked about that. This, uh, uh, and, and you hear the Buddha talk about this. I, I began with the importance of self-appreciation for what you're doing here. Having kindness towards yourself and compassion towards yourself. There's a striking uh, discourse, uh, the Atikari Sutta, where the, a Brahmin comes to the Buddha and says, you know, so I understand that you say there's no self-doer or no self-agency behind experience. And, but it's like, no, 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 there's self-agency. And I think he's pr trying to say, sometimes a sense of agency can be really important for practice. It's just to see that it's a construct and to utilize it skillfully and to see where there can be suffering entangled around it. There's many different ways of, of utilizing that construct in, in skillful ways. Maybe an, another place just to play around with this, and, and play is the big word. It's just, it's just, it's just listening, and that's why I, I wanted to give you the, the 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 analogy around jazz is that it wasn't like I was trying to do something around it. I needed to open the ears and receive and be receptive to what I'm hearing, and it has much more of that sense. So I'm not trying to grab after and try to really look for something. But another place to become sensitive to it, this is the the kind of, um, oh, I don't know the word to use for this. It's called the, the impulses of the mind that give rise to, for example, action. These impulses. So there's an impulse in the mind and then an action happens. So there's, you're, you're walking, doing walking meditation and then there's a loud sound. And from the loud sound, then there's the impulse to move the head and to look. Just to notice those arisings of, oh, interesting, and sometimes it's gonna be a kind of after the fact mindfulness of, oh, oh, there was the impulse to move and then the movement happened. 
Oh, it wasn't me. That's just the activity of the body and the mind unfolding. Isn't that interesting? There's an unpleasant feeling in the, bo- in the, in the belly and you're sitting there, right? Feeling that. There's the wanting to eat and then that starts to translate into the movement, the motion of the arm to pick up the spoon and to get a scoop of something. The mind having this propensity propelling in a certain way and then it taking the form of movement. Can you start to notice that? How the the mind is impelling sometimes the body in certain directions. Through it's wanting this or not wanting that or needing to go in this direction or that direction. And sometimes the way to get a feeling sense of that is to start to get sensitive to the about to moment. It's another way of translating maybe this impulse. I'm about to grab onto my piece of paper. Oh, there's an about to moment. There's the, in, the kind of the, the, the mind intending to do that and then it forms into the action. And the great thing about being sensitive to it is it starts to undermine the feeling sense that I am doing it. Oh, interesting, it feels like walking is just walking itself. Oh, there's no me here. It's just the activity of walking unfolding, the activity of breathing unfolding. The activity of turning the head, the activity of raising a spoon. It's just conditions that have come together and then they pass away. So an invitation to get a feeling sense of that. To see if you can see this in a different way than needing a subject to those activities and rather seeing it just as conditions arising and passing away. And I think uh, sometimes these feelings just kind of come upon us when it feels like we're being breathed or being walked and to take those in. And most importantly, this isn't just so we can have some trippy experience. It's because it can be so relieving. I find there can be so much freedom when I step out of my world, my story, my view. What comes is a sense of a sigh of relief. There's a, a poem by the poet, uh, her name is uh, Danusha Lameras, entitled Fictional Characters, that I think describes some of this or shares some of this feeling sense. And so I'd like to share that with you, but just to let you know, she's, you know, some of the names she's using are you know, fictional characters and and works of of fiction, like Holden Caulfield from Catcher in the Rye, or Anna Karenina from Tolstoy's great novel. 
So she begins her poem. She says, she asks the question about these fiction, fictional queer characters. Do they ever want to escape? Climb out of the curved white pages and enter our world. Holden Caulfield slipping in the side door of the movie theater to catch the two o'clock. Anna Karenina sitting in the local diner, reading the paper as the waitress in a bright green uniform serves up a cheeseburger and a Coke. Even Hector, on break from the Iliad, takes a stroll through the park, admires a fresh bed of tulips. Who knows? Maybe they were growing tired of the author's mind, all its twists and turns. Or they were finally weary of stumbling around Pamplona, a bottle in each fist, eating lotuses on the banks of the Nile. Perhaps it was just too hot in the small California town where they'd been written into a lifetime of plowing fields. Whatever the reason, here they are, content to spend the day roaming the streets, rain falling on their phantasmal shoulders, enjoying the bustle of the crowd. Wouldn't you, if you could, step out of your own story? To lean for an afternoon against the doorway of the five and dime, sipping your coffee? Your life somewhere far behind you. All its heat and toil, nothing but a tale. Nothing but a tale resting in the hands of a stranger. The dingy sidewalk ahead, wet and glistening. For me, that's a beautiful vision of freeing the heart. These simple things like feeling the rain falling or enjoying the bustle of the crowd. Walking down the dingy, dingy sidewalk that's wet and glistening. It speaks to me of the promise of a kind of intimacy, not only with the world out there, but with each other when I can step out of my story. Yeah, so may we may we hear this music of dependent origination of this arising and passing in order to step out of these confining stories really in a way that that leads to the liberation of of all beings let's uh let's just sit for a, a moment here